Australia have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out the crowd. Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. Today we're talking about mysteries, which poses the question, is cricket mysterious? Well, its origins are, we sort of know where it comes from, from trap ball and stick ball and other games of the Middle Ages, and people have been hitting things with sticks since time began. We think we know that the game became popular on the Downs of Sussex and the Weald of Kent, and it appears in print for the first time in 1677, during the reign of Charles II, the Merry Monarch, when sports like bull-baiting and cock-fighting were not only legal, but firm favourites among lords and rogues alike. One afternoon in June, Thomas Leonard, the new Earl of Sussex, withdrew £3 from his accounts to go, as he wrote in the family ledger, to cricket at Ye Dicker. The Dicker was a stretch of common ground on the Pevensey Levels, close to the Earl's home, Hurst Monceau, a dramatic structure that dominates the landscape and is one of the first brick buildings in England. Maybe the Earl was trying to cheer himself up. He'd found a wife, a 14-year-old girl called Lady Anne Fitzroy, whose mother was Barbara Villiers and whose father, it was widely thought, was the King himself. Anne had caused such a scene at court that Thomas had decamped to Hurst Monceau to get her out of the way. And soon Anne, probably bored to death by the countryside, had left with her mother for Paris, where she began an affair with the Duke of Montague. As founding myths as a story, that's not a bad one, is it? Leonard's accounts book tells us something. It gives us a thread to pull on. I'm joined now by Tom Holland, historian and keen amateur cricketer. Tom, is it possible to know where cricket began? Are origin stories just something that we need to impose order on chaos? I I don't think it is possible to pinpoint where cricket begins um because i i suspect that if you think of cricket as a kind of you know a mighty river um there were many tributaries that fed into it and because we don't have written records of um what these various tributaries may have been the origins of cricket is almost it, it's almost entirely speculation um so you you've got that amazing story that you were saying if you you push it back there are kind of i think there are court records from the end of the 16th century that that name check something that's clearly cricket um so you can put it there but beyond that it's it's much more sparse much more uh difficult to pin down and i think that one of the things that's that's fascinating about cricket is that it actually encourages speculation the fact that we don't know where it comes from is indeed a, a crucial part of its mystique as a historian of the ancient world, you're always delving backwards in time. How many assumptions do you make and how do you begin to make them? Well, it's interesting. I, right at the moment, I'm doing um, a, a children's history of ancient Greece in which I'm taking everything the Greeks believed literally. So the gods exist, um, all the legends that the Athenians or the Spartans or whatever told about the origins of their city, taking them absolutely literally and it's really fun to write like that because um you you suddenly realize how kind of rich and complex those stories actually are when you 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 you, you take them literally because the truth is that um if you're writing history essentially you it's a process of 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 paint stripping often you're 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 taking away these kind of accretions these layers of folklore and myth and trying to pinpoint what lies underneath and often you find there's there's absolutely nothing um, and so it is a bit with cricket that there are all kinds of theories and stories and legends. So um, there are reports that cricket 
perhaps was being played in Florence in the 8th century. There's a record of a monk doing that. Um, there's a, a poet, English poet in the 16th, in the 12th century, who says that, that people enjoy a leisure activity called cricks. Um, in the reign of Edward I, uh, so that's um, in the 13th century, um, there's a report that the Prince of Wales, the, the future Edward II, who would reputedly end up with a, a red hot poker up his arse, um, he, he he was apparently passionate about a game called Krieg. I don't know whether there's a connection to his ultimate grisly fate there or not. So so people have kind of thought, well, perhaps, you know, we can trace the origins. I, I don't think we can. I don't think any of these things, you know, we're, 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 we're hunting for, for needles in haystacks. Um, but they are at least faintly plausible. What's great is that there are actually some stories that are clearly ridiculous. So there's, there's um, a very popular theory um, among Australian Armenians that cricket began in Armenia. Uh, and I remember one report um, that was arguing this, that, that the headline, Did Jesus Play Cricket?, which, you know, questions to which the answer is no. I think that's that's quite a winner. But this kind of idea that you can push it back and back and back, that's something absolutely recognisable. And I think that just as, um, you know, I mean, a city like Athens, a city like Rome, it has to have sensational origin myths. A sport like cricket, one of the measures of, of, of its stature and its resonance and its romance is that it too has to have a, a kind of primordial origin myth. Yeah, and then when we get to the point that people do start to write about cricket, how reliable is the information they're giving us? I think it's pretty reliable because, it, because uh, of course, when they're writing about it, they're not, they're not consciously fabricating it. Um, the sense that we have of cricket the late 18th century, 19th century um, notion of cricket as as the emblem of, of, of England in a way, a kind of um, representative activity that sums up what being English is all about. It, it, back in the 17th, back in the early 18th century, it doesn't quite have that sense. So people are just writing about it in the way that people would today would write up match reports. So I think that that's fairly reliable. Um, the, the risk, of course, is that we we back project our understanding of what cricket becomes onto these reports. So what someone in the 17th century may mean by cricket isn't necessarily what your what, what someone in the 19th century is, 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 is meaning. I mean, in the same way that what somebody today means by cricket isn't necessarily what someone would have understood in the 1950s. It's, it's constantly evolving. Yeah, well, I suppose the reason I ask the question is that when we get to uh, the rise of the Hambledon Club, um, really the first, one of the first recognisable clubs in the country, certainly the dominant club in the country for 30 or 40 years. When it was written about by the son of a publican, John Nyron, he was writing some years later and his view was both sort of lamplit and nostalgic, but also based very much around character. He was projecting his memories of these characters who played as much as he was remembering the game itself. And I suppose that gives us a different kind of texture to the history. Yes. And with, with Hambledon, you're starting to, to recognise cricket's incredible ability to mythologise itself. Um, yes. which, which, which which keeps happening again and again. There's clearly something um, inherent within cricket that 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 lends itself to the elegiac. So one of the things about the sport is that it is constantly reinventing itself, as as we've seen recently. But that very process mm. of reinvention, it, in turn, encourages a sense of nostalgia. 
So almost the moment that that Hambledon ceased to be the the the, the, the power center of the game, people started romanticizing it. People, you know, it, it kind of, and, and even now, Hambledon conjures up images of of men in you know top hats flitting through um, golden sunlight and, and and lengthening shadows, and. Um, in a sense, it establishes the, the prototype of the professional game. We have a sense of Hambledon as as um, the, the eye, you know, the centre of of of, of English, England's attention. People are writing up reports of it. This is where cricket is stepping onto the national stage. At the same time, this is also where the the, the kind of the mythic ideal of village cricket begins. The the ideal that, that of blacksmiths and publicans and vicars all taking their turn on the wicket. Um, and to go to Hambledon now, as you'll know, we both played there. I mean, it's 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 an atmospheric place, and it's atmospheric partly because it's very beautiful in itself, but also atmospheric because it comes freighted with these memories, with the well, with these myths. One poem I found while I was researching is Incertum and Pili, a Latin verse written by a schoolteacher, William Goldwyn, in seventeen o six. Yes, which which I translated. What I always found fascinating, and maybe it was your translation I read, I don't know, I hope so, but <laughs> what was fascinating about the poem was that so many of Cricket's archetypes already existed. There was the humour of dropping catches and runouts. There was the kind of jovial scorer, the uh, the umpire, you know, handing down his decisions, the players not agreeing with them. A lot of what we think of as, as kind of village cricket standards, what we might even call village as we hurl insults at our cricketing friends, seem to have begun a very, very long time ago. Yes. Um, so so you've, got the, you've got the archetype of the village cricket match there. But I think in Cheatham and Pile is also um, it's specifically um, a school cricket match. Um, so that also it stands at the head of a very, very long tradition which is also you know so you you start to get um cricket as uh the emblem of english boyhood particularly famously in tom brown's school boy school days um and that's where you start to, to get the sense of an of yet another process of cricket self-mythologization with this idea that cricket reveals character um the idea that something is not cricket I mean, it's an extraordinary phrase. The idea that that playing a sport is somehow a measure of moral achievement and moral stature. You don't, I think, get that with with any other sport. But that also is part of this kind of freight of 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 myth that ca- that cricket kind of picks up as it goes through the decades and then through the centuries. And we still got kind of trace elements of that even now, even in the age of of of, of twenty twenty and. Uh, and betting, which which of course is also interesting, because of course that tradition of betting and gambling, and um, you know that's there right from the beginning. So again, that, that you know that also is something very primordial. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned this notion of Englishness and fair play that came along probably with the Victorians and the the era of W. G. Um, your most recent book, Dominion, is a is a a history of not a history of Christianity, but a history of the influence of Christianity. This kind of uh, Victorian era of muscular Christianity, of vigour and health and fair play, how much of that is it fair to say impacted on their view of cricket? Well, I think I think cricket um, is an activity that generally, um, certainly back in the 17th century, which is why we so often get mentions of it in court records, 
is is something that the church officially disapproves of because of course it's played you know on sundays and um the day of rest and the idea that people are going off and playing cricket causes some consternation um by the 19th century absolutely it's it's coming to be seen as um not just not just kind of moral not just manly in the victorian sense but somehow expressive of the behavior of a christian and that's definitely the sense that it has in in tom brown's school days and that is something that kind of again clings to it through the 19th century into the 20th century so again and again if you look at i mean you think of of um uh comic stories in particular so raffles um, is a kind of parody of a genre in which cricketers are often parsons are often um boys who've done incredibly well at school and been moral in the, the stamp of, of of tom brown and part of the parody of raffles who's who is a brilliant cricketer is that he's an amateur cracksman so he's you know breaking into people's safes and stealing their jewelry and things and and part of the shock of that is that he raffles is not just um you know he hasn't just been to a decent public school and it belongs to a decent club but that he's a cricketer so the idea that a cricketer could go around being a cat burglar is is meant to be funny that's part of the point of the story i suppose the need for for myth is almost a a, need, a a yearning in many ways for things to be true that might not be um one of the most extraordinary stories that you've told uh in the pages of night watchman from which we spring was uh, was a piltdown man um Again, uh, uh, a very much a piece of myth, but a story that came along at a time when people were anxious to uh, to explain and believe in in many things that were being dug up out of the earth. In this case, uh, an amateur fossil hunter finding um, what he claimed was a, a prehistoric forebear of man. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that story. Yeah, well... It- there's, there's kind of bragging rights in having something that's very old. So that's one of the reasons why people are so keen to push the origins of cricket back as far as they can, because they feel that antiquity is is kind of expressive of status. Um, and the same was true in the 19th century with the discovery of um, the remains of, of, of prehistoric men, uh, prehistoric women even as well. Um, and uh, the, both the French and the Germans had discovered... Um, palpable remains of uh, prehistoric hominids and the british were jealous because we didn't have one um and this was felt to be unacceptable uh in the age of the, the when the british empire was at its greatest spread the fact that we didn't have a, a, a prehistoric hominid you know insupportable so in 1912 um in uh, in in a quarry in sussex uh, outside a village called piltdown um they found a prehistoric hominid and there was huge rejoicing and everyone greeted it with a kind of great surge of patriotism. Um, and over the course of the years that followed, um, further fragments got, got discovered um, and, and dug up and um, it got enshrined. It was called um, Aeoanthropus dorsoni, which means dawn man and Dawsoni of Dawson, because Dawson was Charles Dawson, who was a solicitor, um, lived in Lewis, uh, who was the guy who miraculously kept finding all these, <laughs> all these fossil remains. And um, 
it in due course it turned out to to to, to be a massive fake it was kind of various bits of gorilla that had been kind of dipped in tea and <laughs> stitched together bits of jawbone bits of cranium from different species uh and but but it wasn't an, an, until um I, th- I think until the 40s that it was conclusively proved to, to be a fake um and so there've been various theories as to um as, as to who might have been doing this one the most obvious i think the university accepted one is that it was charles dawson who was doing it um someone else who got fingered for it was arthur conan doyle who, who whose house was just round the corner from piltdown and was yeah of course a famous cricketer um but the most intriguing part of these these collections of, of that were found in piltdown came towards the end of the process of discovery when um <laughs> they've they found what seemed to be um, a cricket bat. And it was a cricket bat that had been carved out of elephant bone. And, well, yes. And so and so the theory is that this discovery of a cricket bat may actually have been found by someone who wanted to expose the fact that um, that this was a fake. Uh, and Chris Stringer, who's kind of eminence grease of um, uh, prehistoric hominids at the Natural History Museum, has suggested that it was um, a volunteer at the Natural History Museum called Martin Hinton, who later became the keeper of zoology. And um, Stringer suggests that Hinton knew that that this was a fake and so was trying to kind of, you know, make it look ridiculous. And so possibly he had he had laid he'd he'd he'd, he'd fashioned this cricket bat put it um, in, in, in the quarry where Dawson then found it. Um, and, and to Hinton's horror, uh, everyone took it completely, you know, were ecstatic to, to, to kind of discover that, because, because this was, this was um, at the time, was the world's oldest bone implement. And people in England were absolutely thrilled to think that the world's oldest bone implement had actually been a cricket bat. Because that really does push, push the origins of cricket a very, very long way back. And it kind of shows, I mean, it kind of illustrates how when you want to believe something, you're going to believe it. And 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 evidence, even if it seems completely ridiculous, is, you know, you're going to cling on to it. Yeah, I mean, it's a point you 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 made very beautifully at the end of the piece when you said that uh, ancient and modern was that was the mark of cricket and that more than any other sport in our imaginations, it needs to be both. It needs to be both ancient and modern. And I think that really has its echo when we look at the heroes of cricket uh, um, the players themselves who we who we see in a certain vein you mentioned the West Indian players of the uh, the 70s and 80s more recently I'm thinking of a, a hero of both of ours Kevin Peterson who you immediately drew parallels with the Greeks and the Romans yeah, I, I, I... it's an interesting parallel isn't it that that you know these heroic deeds uh, can happen before our very eyes, ancient and modern at the same time. I mean, I think that um, for for um, for English cricket fans, particularly uh, if like if like us, you're in your fifties, um, there are kind of certain test series that that in cricketing terms come to have something of the romance and the glamour of a Homeric epic, um, and one of those would be the eighty-one series. Um, and Botham yeah. and Willis are enshrined as mythic figures from that. Uh, and then there's 2005, and um, 
you know, Peterson's astonishing century at the Oval was the kind of thing that you could imagine if Homer had liked cricket, he would have written an entire epic about it. And I suspect that um, uh, that that Stokes's century um, against the Australians last summer will 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 likewise in you know twenty, thirty, forty years time, people will still remember that. People will still be writing about it. People will still be reminiscing about it. And um, as is the way with um, with all great heroes, um, it, it it becomes part of poetry, and it, yeah, it becomes part of myth. Um, and if you think about the great the, the great figures of cricket, um, they there are people who no one living saw. Um, we have no um, video footage of them at all, and yet people like Grace or Spofforth or Trumper still they still have a kind of romance. They still have a resonance, uh, and. I'm sure that you know that that that's a crucial part of the of the appeal of cricket as well because um, if cricket itself has this romance, then you need heroes. Yeah, very much so. I mean, but the way we reflect on heroes in the modern age uh, is very immediate, isn't it? We now have social media, which is something you know maybe not even Peterson in 2005 really had. I mean, I don't think Twitter or Instagram or anything had to come along at that stage. But part of part of what made Peterson, such a, a, a compelling figure, was of course that in 2012 he he did have Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> and he he did have texts, um, and part of of Peterson's ability was again you know a bit like you know in Hambledon, is that he mythologised himself and he was able to use his his social media platform to present a, um, an image of himself that perhaps not all his teammates would have recognised. But more than that, to kind of amplify the um, the, the the drama and the excitement yeah. of um, the story that he was the lead hero of. So, um, you know, that, that that series against the South Africans, um, it was against the backdrop of the uh, of the London Olympics. So cricket was was in massive danger of being kind of blotted out completely by by what was going on in London. Um it, it was almost entirely down to Peterson that cricket got back onto the front pages. Uh, and it wasn't just that he scored that amazing century and that his batting was astonishing. It was also that he was simultaneously hero and villain. And, you know, that's the, that's the mark, I think, of a very, very great cricketer is not just what you do on the sports field, but whether you are able to kind of present yourself as as um essentially a kind of fascinating figure who might step out of the pages of a play or a novel or a drama or whatever. Uh, and Peterson absolutely did that and does that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting you should say that because obviously I think quite a few people who are listening might cast their minds to a social media account that's slightly closer to home for you. Um, that also involves an element of myth making. I mean, you proudly wear the banner now of having been called by the Times of London, one of England's leading cricketers. Um, That's what it said. That's what it said, John. And the Britain's paper <laughs> of record. that you hear has been described by Patrick Kidd of that very newspaper as the most famous since Albert Trott hit the ball over the Lord's Pavilion. I wonder if people who know you purely through social media have a heightened view of you as a cricketer. <laughs> well, sometimes I do meet people who follow me on Twitter and 
um, are convinced that I am genuinely a great cricketer. <laughs> and even worse, there's occasionally there are people who come to watch me and, and their, their jaws drop <laughs> at, the, at the sight of my slow, medium pace being thrashed over the boundary yet again. And the context for it was, as you'll know, because we, we, we play for the same team, was... Um, mm. A team of authors got resuscitated yeah, yeah. Um, and got a book deal, uh, and I was part of that. You were part of that, um, and the, the the gig was that um, we'd all play uh, a, a range of matches, and one of us would um, get to write up one particular match, and we'd put a particular spin on it. So the match that 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 I got allotted was we played at, on the playing fields of Eton, where I think in Chertham and Peelight was set. Um, so a very historic place, but specifically the angle that I got given was age and youth because I was getting on at that point and we were playing against people who I think were 16 and 17. It was the second game we played and I was on the verge of giving up because I'd had a disastrous first match. Um, I just, cricket seemed to be falling to pieces. I felt that I was too old. It was a miserable day. Um, we batted first, uh, didn't make very much. No, sorry. They they um they batted first, made a huge total. Um, I didn't bowl particularly well. Um, then we went into bat. I was going at number eleven. It was grey and miserable. It started to rain. By the time I went out, there was nothing to play for. We were kind of you know we needed a hundred runs. There was no way we were going to do it. Um, and this guy came in. He was lightning quick. You know, I mean, probably kind of Alan Donald's pace. I should think. <laughs> Um, and uh, just yeah, least, you know, this yeah. thunderbolt came searing down. It it swung. It seamed. It jagged. It lifted. I swung, and it went for six. Um, and it was one of the great moments of my life. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll carry on playing cricket after all. But what was even better was that um, because we were uh, because this this was part of a book, we had a, a a fantastic sports photographer with us who took a photo of the immortal moment. And sent it to me that evening. And I just discovered social media. And I was kind of rather high, hidebound and hadn't appreciated that, you know, you, you could basically do anything you liked with it. And I suddenly thought, I could put this out. I could talk about it. So I put it out. And then 10 minutes later, I thought, I could put it out again. And then 10 minutes later, I thought, I could put it out again. I think I put it out something like 20 times that evening. And from that point on, I um, anytime there was any mention of six, up the photo would go. So, uh, you know, now we've got this rule of six. Immediately up the photo goes. Um, and um, it, it a bit, you know, it's kind of like a snowball going down a mountain. It got more and more velocity. And it ended up featuring in the Times. It featured in the Times of India. Um, I even my my greatest coup was to get it into the Wall Street Journal. So, there yes. was a photo. so, so it's 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 a shot that's <laughs> been heard around the world. I'm proud to say, um, but of course the 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 point of it is that if I ever hit another six, its mystique would completely vanish because the whole point is that um, it's the only one. I mean, I suppose what's interesting is should uh, should COVID go ahead and and wipe out the human race or should you know some terrible thunderbolt or black hole descend from the heavens and all that was left of us was social media and it was discovered in the way that we discovered uh cricketers of of our time by john nyron 
and read into that the whole early history of cricket, people might discover your social media account and read into that that you were the uh, the leading English cricketer of the age, which must be something that uh, that thrills and terrifies you. Well, it doesn't really terrify me. I mean, that's why I'm rooting for the destruction of humanity, so that in history books on Alpha Centauri, I am enshrined as Earth's greatest cricketer. Well, a six in space, rather like Tom's Twitter account, will go on forever. In cricket, the great batsmen have mystique, but only the bowlers truly have mystery. That mystery has often been accompanied by allegations of foul play and other chicanery, so brilliant has been the sleight of hand. In the game's lexicon, the purveyor of left-arm wrist spin was until very recently called the Chinaman, after a now thoroughly discredited racist trope, but an instructive one when we come to think about the role of mystery in bowling and how it was regarded. So often that mystery has come from Pakistan, a place where cricket's creative imagination comes alive. Few stories encapsulate the fragile brilliance of new ideas like that of Sir Klain Mushtaq and the rise and fall of his mystery ball, the Dusra. Osman Samuddin is the author of The Unquiet Ones, a majestic history of cricket in Pakistan and a familiar name to those who follow him on ESPN Crick Info. Osman, is it possible to say why Pakistan is the source of so much mystery and invention in the game? With the Dusra, I think, you know, you speak to Sir Klain and I think he, he he was genuinely a very curious mind. But Saklain's uh, initial issue was that he wasn't playing uh, formalized cricket, which a lot of, you know, a lot of youngsters in Pakistan, we, we don't have formalized cricket as such there. It's only when you start, when you join a club, and then you kind of get into this semi-formal system where you kind of move up uh, and onwards. But until then, so, you know, a lot of a lot of kids, conceivably until the age of 15, 16, wouldn't have played with a hardball. Uh, Amir had never played with a hardball, you know. So I think what he, what Saklain did, and I think that it's a telling story in that he was, you know, practice, he used to practice on his rooftop in, in the flats that he used to live on. Uh, and they used to play with a tennis ball and a table tennis ball, a ping pong ball, he calls it. And so he, all he did, he just kept, you know, experimenting with different grips, with different ways of kind of delivering the ball. Uh, and, he, and he came up with this. And I think it was mostly because... You know, he wasn't going to a school which had, like you would hear, which had like a, a cricket setup, or you know, some schools do. I guess not not many schools do now. But he, he wasn't going to a school where he could get some kind of formal induction into the game. So he wasn't coached at all, and he was left to his own devices with the ball. Uh, and then he, you know, the, the more he experimented by playing tape ball cricket on the streets, uh, which is where actually you get a bit of kind of you develop a, a sense of competition there because you know you you start off by playing with with your mates in 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 the lanes and streets where you where you live and then you you kind of come into these loosely formed teams and you play these tournaments where you know there's money at stake sometimes there's other prizes at stake and 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 they're they're amazing kind of breeding grounds for just experimentation um, of of things to do and so you know i, I think it's come as a result mostly uh, of pragmatism and and the the environment in which you kind of play that you're kind of forced to to, to innovate i guess yeah i mean i know sack lane sometimes told the story of how he took the the you know, the, the the ball that became known as the Deucer from the rooftop where he just flick flicked the smaller ball with his brothers, but took it out into the streets of Lahore. And it sort of spread through the streets, the idea that this ball was doing something different to, uh, you know, to the regular off spinner. And I love that kind of sense of it 
almost being a, a like an oral tradition or a you know something that was passed on from one person to another purely by seeing it i mean that seems to be almost like a genuine mystery rather than reading about it online or anything like that you know it had a genuine sort of life of its own absolutely and you know there's a there's an interesting i think i, I guess historical precedent to this is that uh, back in the late 70s and 80s, there was a, there was a guy, a first-class cricketer, left-arm spinner, SLA, so, you know, so left-arm orthodox, called Nadim Musa, who uh, was a respectable kind of spinner, but his real, his, his real kind of fame was on the, on the tennis ball circuit. Uh, so, you know, he used to play in Karachi. And uh, what, what they did, what, what he did was he, was he was known as the finger spinner, like the greatest finger spinner of all time. But finger spinner was essentially, he was a deliverer of, of what we know now as carom balls. So you kind of flick it from the front of your finger, right? Uh, and because they used to play with tennis balls, so he, he used to be able to squeeze the ball in that grip. And then when he let go, it was just, you know, it used to do fearsome things off the, off the, off the surface. So to combat him was how a lot of people say, you know, and, and there's no documentation of this, and such, but to combat what he was doing, they started putting electrical tape on the ball, on the tennis ball, to make it kind of harder and so harder to squeeze in a grip. And so that's where tape ball cricket came out from, in Pakistan at least. So, you know, it, it's kind of, that's how it spread. So there were a lot of finger spinners at that time on the circuit in Karachi, um, and mostly kind of slow left-arm spinners. So there, there were some very good bowlers at that time who could actually bowl a decent carom ball uh, sometime, you know, and it wasn't picked up from, say, Jack Iverson or any of the other kind of, you know, mystery uh, carom ball bowlers that we've had in cricket in the past. But it was just a kind of, you know, it came from where they, again, from where they played Sir Klain sometimes told the story of how he took the ball from the rooftop out onto the street and it spread through the city as other bowlers found out about it. And I love that idea of it being an oral tradition, something passed on from one person to another purely by seeing it. And of course, when Sir Klain began to bowl the deuce in professional cricket, it hit the game like a meteor. Well, you know, I was looking up some stats uh, this, this morning, in fact. And so I took the period. What So this is from the 1st of January, 1996, which is, you know, just a few months after his debut, international debut. Uh, and until the end of the century, until the end of the millennium. So 31st December, 1999. And he was nearly 50 ODI wickets ahead of the next best guy on that list. So this is not just spinners. This is all bowlers uh, of any kind. Uh, he was ahead. He So he had 202 wickets in just 106 ODI. So he's taking wickets nearly two and a game which you know for an ODI is is a pretty immense kind of record he was averaging under 20 um, had a strike rate of 27 and a half the next best was uh, Kumble behind him in terms of wickets and the only bowler who really compared to him in that period is actually another bowler that we don't talk about as much as we should maybe in terms of his uh, especially his white ball feats is Alan Donald who was averaging 18 and a half at that time which is just insane for that period. So, you know, at that time, uh, and, and I used to think it then, and I think a lot of people did at the time, at, at that time, he was probably up there with, I think, Warren and Kumble, uh, and, and maybe Murli, although Murli kind of really, really came into his own this millennium, I think. But I, I think Saklain was up there as pretty much the best spinner in the world. Just as the Doozer had spread through street games in Lahore, so it became the ball de jour in pro cricket. Shoaib Malik and Mohammed Hafiz bowled it, as did Saeed Ajmal and Johan Botha and Harbhajan Singh. Mutai Muralitharan, already an extraordinary bowler, began turning his deucer miles. From nowhere, this ball was transforming finger spin in the way that the googly had changed wrist spin. Yeah, I mean, it was insane. And, you know, Murli was always getting more turn anyway with, because of, he put so much wrist, I guess, and shoulder into his into his bowling. But that when he developed that deucer, and I remember, was it the... Was it the 2003 tour 
when England went there, when Chris, it wouldn't have been actually, it was somebody else, but Chris Broad was the match referee, wasn't he? Who first said that, you know, we, we need to look at his Dusra again um, and, and kind of put that in the scanner. But the amount of turn he was getting was just ridiculous. And then came 2004 when Murali, Harbhajan and Shoaib were reported for throwing their Dusra. The remedial testing they underwent revealed something new about almost every bowler, that they flexed their arm far more than anyone had previously thought. The ICC amended the laws to reflect this new information, but the problem with the Dusra didn't go away. Seclain had learned to bowl the ball in childhood and had his whole life to get his shoulder and wrist used to the contortions needed to bowl it properly. Other bowlers that learned the ball in adulthood could keep within the laws when they were fresh and strong, but as they tired, their arms began to flex. Johan Botha was reported in 2006, Syed Ajmal in 2009. An Australian committee that included Shane Warne and Terry Jenner concluded that the Dusra was not a ball that could be bowled legitimately, and Australian coaches stopped teaching it. Ajmal was reported again in 2014, and the era of the Dusra was almost over. So I did a story on this when, when, when Ajmal was banned in 2014. And you, you remember he'd had this amazing period where he was one of the world's leading bowlers. He'd helped Pakistan to uh, a, a clean sweep against England. Uh, nobody could pick him. You know, he was bowling a lot. And then suddenly he gets called. And so I did, I did the story for the Cricket Monthly at the time, which was kind of looking at what was going on at that time. And if you remember, there was a real movement within the ICC to start, to start kind of reporting bowlers. Uh, for flawed actions, and so a lot of them, you know, felt kind, kind of it was it was kind of the wiping away of the Dusra from the game at that time, and and that was a process that had started effectively, I think, in two thousand and four. But I'd probably give credit, some credit, to the ICC here in that, you know, they based a lot of this on science and academia. They reached out to sort of universities and and these labs where you know they they went they went through kind of they did a lot of research into the biomechanics of bowling and, and what happens when you do bowl a dusra and and they you know they set better one of the one of the earliest findings as you pointed out was the fact that almost every bowler in the world I think it was other than Ronnie Sarwan. I think Ramresh Sarwan was one who was a completely straight arm release. Um, so, you know, they, they discovered that and then they realized, okay, one, we have to change our flex limits that we allow. But I think the good thing that they did, whether it happened by default or by or by kind of deliberation, I think what they did was they, they took a lot of the emotion out of the, the this whole argument about chucking and, and it being something that you're cheating with, you know, and, and it wasn't. What it was was what the ICC proved it to be was that it was just... It was, it was a it was a flaw in the action. It was an illegal illegal action. You went beyond the limit, and that was it. It was a science based thing. It wasn't that somebody was trying to cheat you. It wasn't that he was trying to do this and that. You know, it was just they took the emotion out of it. Um, but sadly, I guess for guys like us, they they also took the dusra out of the game ultimately. So, do you think, Osman, there is there is still room for mystery in in bowling? Uh, I mean, I guess what we're seeing at the moment is a plethora of slower balls, which aren't necessarily mysterious, but, uh, you know, they're certainly very clever. Mm. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess there will be like every time we think that there isn't any room, you know, somebody comes along from an environment that we haven't kind of accounted for or delved too deeply into. And, and you know, who would have thought? 40 years ago that you'd have somebody with an action like Malinga's or even now Jaspreet Bumrah. You know, those, those actions constitute a, a degree of mystery to some people, uh, to some batsmen, you know, especially Bumrah's kind of whiplash that he has with his action. And that's something that, you know, he's just grown up with. So I, I would never rule out that there will be more kind of innovations just because of the range and the diversity of the countries 
you know, that play cricket and, and, and the environments in which kids grow up playing cricket in. Uh, you know, from the women's game, man, like I, I, I see like my, my niece plays a lot of cricket in Karachi and she's like, you know, fairly, fairly serious about it. She's 13 now, but and we're trying to push her to kind of get into it more seriously. But I, I see in, in some little examples, you know, the way she thinks about the game and the way she thinks of the game is, is very different to how I would have kind of played. Just just even in terms of grips of how she holds the ball, she likes to bowl more than she bats. But just in the way, you know, so, you know, can, women will bring different perspectives and mysteries and innovations into the game the more they play and the more of them that play. So I, I wouldn't ever rule it out. Uh, it'd be impossible to predict <laughs> what kind of stuff we'll see, but I, I don't think I'd ever rule it out for sure. I hope they can, like, somehow someone comes along who bowls it and they find that he's doing it within the 15 degree threshold. I really hope that something like that happens. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. When Don Bradman was dismissed for cricket's most famous duck at the Oval in 1948, few people, including perhaps Bradman himself, understood the statistical significance of what had just happened. As the most casual of stats fans will tell you, Bradman needed to make at least four runs in his final test innings to complete his career with a batting average of 100. Notwithstanding the fact that no one knew for certain Bradman would not bat again in the match, given that his duck came in Australia's first innings, the statistic, which would become ubiquitous if it were happening today, was simply not that well known at the time. It doesn't get mentioned during John Arlott's famously beautiful piece of commentary on the innings. Back in 1948, statistics were something that appeared once each year in Wisden Almanac, and Bradman's greatness was measured differently by those that sat and watched it. Now that we're so distant from him, statistics retrospectively applied have become the main way in which we understand cricket of the deep past. We use the numbers to compare players with their contemporaries and across eras. But along with the revolution in playing techniques, T20 cricket has given rise to a new statistical age in which, like algebra and physics, stats have become a language with which to explain and understand the deeper hidden patterns of the game. Are numbers the way in which we will finally crack the mysteries of cricket? Jared Kimber, who began his career as a writer and broadcaster, has gone on to work as a player analyst for teams in both franchise and international short-form cricket. Jared, when did you begin to understand that stats could be used in a new kind of way? I would be talking with my friends and uh, they would say something stupid and I would have to correct them. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, most of my career comes from having conversations with my friends and going, that can't be right. I'm going to look that up. Uh, and I think what I then started to do, especially with T20 cricket, T20 cricket, so uh, it's got so many limits on it that uh, test cricket doesn't have. And it's an efficiency sport, which test cricket is not even, you know, they're both forms of cricket, but they're very different. Uh, the, the idea is to get as many runs as possible in 120 deliveries. And once I started to think about those sorts of things, you do think, well, wait a minute. There is a completely different way to think about sport here um, that, we should be, that we should be looking at. And there had already been, I suppose, a movement in baseball. Um, I followed basketball. Basketball was going through a bit of a renaissance as well. And I think I wrote a piece for um, Crick Info where I said, this is ridiculous. Almost everything we say about T20 cricket is wrong. Yeah. And these teams are already looking at it better and we're not. So we should start to do that. And my editor, um, Sam Burt, sadly decided that I was the man who should do that. So can you explain 
when a player, when an analyst, a statistical analyst goes into a franchise side or an international side and, and you've done both, how is he received by the players and what sort of information do the coaches want you to give to the players? And how does how does having an analyst work in the framework of a, of a franchise team? Look, it's worked very differently for so many teams that I have worked for. That they, I don't think there's a set way of going. Generally, what happens is a team is looking for an analyst. An analyst comes in uh, and the first thing that they are told is that they have to look after the video. Uh, I think the first two jobs I worked on, I didn't have access to any video, so I was already out there. Um, But essentially you come in and and the idea is really to help with team selection first, uh, to help with bowler tactics second, and then I would say third is probably working with the captain on, uh, you know, uh, perhaps batting orders, but more often who to bowl and where to bowl. Those are the sort of the the basic things that then an analyst does. And so every analyst is different and bring their own... Uh, sort of way to it there's no because there's there's no like analyst software if you will there's lots of different different ways of doing it so my software and and my system is completely different to many other analysts so that's a bit different to so, say what a lot of the american teams do where people came along and sold that and i think county cricket you might there's a software that i think the ecb might have uh, paid for the rights to but that software doesn't exist in South Africa and, and those sorts of things. So generally, most analysts come with the information themselves. And then it's it's really, it's a bit of a free-for-all what happens. When I was hired my first time, I thought I was coming in to literally uh, talk to the coach and the captain. And then two days later, I was running the bowling team meeting, right. Um, right. which was, and, and I, hadn't pra- I hadn't prepared for it. I wasn't sure how to get that information across. So there are some analysts who never talk directly to team meetings. And there are other analysts more like myself and Nathan Lehman who lead a lot of uh, meetings. But yeah, there is, there is no one job because there are a lot of analysts in the world that have, you know, in cricket teams that still just do video. Really? And then there's a lot of us, yeah, a lot of us who go more towards the data side. Um, and then and then you've got, you've got to understand that uh, one of my big things is that Moneyball is a very old concept and that Moneyball is very outdated. Basically what Moneyball told you to do was try and work out market inefficiencies and how your team can be better. Whereas now what we can work out is it's not about going, that guy is no good at playing left arm finger spin, let's never play him again. It's going to him and saying, you're no good against left arm finger spin when they bowl around the wicket to you. Is there a reason that we think that's the case? Should we get you uh, together with a coach? Is there something that we need to do? It can, maybe can the two of us come up with a particular coaching method um, that will work for you? Uh, and though, so things are slightly changing now in what analysts do. And I think that's much more of a role where generally, I think when it started, uh, analysts, most analysts would talk directly to the coach and very few other players, maybe the captain, whereas now there's real give and take between those, those sorts of things and players are getting more used to it. But it, it is a real generational thing. You know, if, you, if you're working with a senior player, um, they're just like, well, I've got here without you. Why would I need your information? Whereas a young player just sees you as part of the furniture and it's just like, you, you're having coffee with the coach. You must know something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I remember you saying, when you, I think when you first went to the CPL, were you, weren't you with David Warner? And, and, yes. Uh, so all of a sudden you're here with one of the, the, the biggest kind of T20 players in the game who's going around the world cleaning up financially and, and in cricket terms. How, you know... How do you even know what data to give a guy like that? 
It's very interesting. It wasn't just him either. It was Kyron Pollard. <laughs> so, so the, the and Darren Sammy. So you got one guy who's won a bunch of titles as a captain, another guy who's probably the best opener in the world at that point, and Kyron Pollard who's played the most games. So it was it was a very interesting thing to do. I, I waited for them to come to me to a certain point uh, because I, I was still learning what I was doing. But but you did realize there were certain little things that David Warner wanted to know, but he maybe didn't want to ask for them. What he wanted, what he wanted really, was for me to be in the lobby and to come over and just start chatting about cricket, and then I would say, "Oh, funny you say that, Davey, because this." Uh, with with Kyron Polo, uh, Polly's a very private sort of person. You, you know, he doesn't give a lot of press interviews. Uh, you know, he's not he's not out there making uh, music videos like his mate DJ Bravo. Very private person. Once he comes to you, though, he wants everything. Right. Um, he may not use any of it. He may not trust any of it, but. He wants it, and he wants it raw and unedited. That's what he wants. And Darren Sammy, he was thinking of it, I think, at that stage in his career, was probably thinking, I'm going to be going into coaching. I need to understand what this analyst does. So, you know, in down moments, he would sort of come over and we would chat about how it could work and how he found it interesting. So already you've got three completely different people. And, and that's the thing with these cricket change rooms. You, you go into the CPL. Um, even when I worked with Scotland or, um, you know, uh, Melbourne Stars or some of the consultancy work, you've got to remember the different backgrounds. You've got like this old grizzled either English or South African coach. Uh, then you've got maybe a younger sort of more tech savvy, uh, maybe even a, a, a coach who might have, you know, a, a PhD or something um, in the corner. You then have, you literally in that change room have players who never finished high school and you have other guys who are, you know, um, who own and operate their own businesses. It's a really, and then that's before getting into the international side of things and the different backgrounds. So you can't go in as a cricket analyst and think that there is one size fits all. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a family of educators, my family involved in um, teaching. So I, I sort of pick the brains of my aunties and my uncles a little bit and go, how would you teach a 12-year-old this? And how would you teach a 25-year-old this? And and you, you start to go through those sorts of things. And the, when you talk about the kind of data that they want to know, are they surprised by what you're telling them? Are they, you know, is it revealing things about their game that they didn't actually know? Uh, definitely. In some cases, there was a particular bowler I worked with who I said to him, how do you think you bowl against left-handers? And he goes, probably I struggle a little bit. And I said, yeah, you do. I said, have you thought about bowling around the wicket more? And he goes, oh, I don't think I ever have. I said, you've bowled 50 balls around the wicket to left-handers. In those 50 balls, you go at eight runs and over. In the thousand balls that you bowled over the wicket to left-handers, you go at 11 runs and over. Now, it's only 50 balls, but my guess is you never practice in the nets of bowling around the wicket and that you haven't even thought about this. And he was just looking at me dumbfounded, whereas some other times you go to them and you'll say something to them like, you're scoring at six runs and over against spinners. Is there something we can do to bump that up? And he'll say, the reason I do it is because my whole innings is about getting to the last five overs and then going bang. Now, if the spinners pair, I would probably score at nine runs and over against them. So sometimes they ha they know exactly why that stat exists, and other times they just haven't thought about it. So, it, it, you know, and then when you look at you know wider you know sort of wider points in cricket and and different strategies. So so one of my things is, and I think this happened in a CPL game because the CPL game is quite advanced when it comes to this sort of stuff recently, where one player in the power play refused to take a single even though a single was on offer because he knew that his better matchup was at that end and the guy he was batting with had a worse matchup. Now, I know a lot of players who know that information and I've had conversations with top-level T20 players saying to them they should do that. And they go, if I do that and I knock back a single, next ball I'm bowled, 
That is all that people are going to talk about for a week. So sometimes they know about this stuff and it's almost encouraging them or giving them a, a space to feel a bit safer um, to do that, you know. And it might be something as simple as I'm an off spinner and I bowl around the wicket. I want to bowl around the wicket to right-handers. But the first time I did it, I got hit for six. Have you got any data that says that I, this this should work? I suppose my um, criticism of, of stats, and I've had this conversation with a few people, is that they're, they're a bit, they become a bit like algorithms on a on a on Amazon or something, where they, you, they they just drive you down a certain channel. You know, you say to such and such a player, "Well, you know, you're no good against uh, this type of bowling." So then all he faces is that kind of bowling. It becomes a sort of reductive. It's almost like a tunnel that you go down. Um, and the games become more and more predictable because everyone has the same information. Is that a fair criticism of where we're going with stats? Or is the game kind of open and mysterious enough to constantly evolve around the sort of information that you're giving? I think what, and I've heard that said before, and I think you and I have had that conversation, but you can't conquer cricket. Um, I'm not sure you can conquer any sport realistically, but you certainly can't conquer cricket. And one of the reasons you can't is because the pitch doesn't care about your algorithm. So on on an individual basis, on any particular day, it, that's kind of, you know, I can say go out there and hit, try and hit a six every ball, but we know that there are pitches where that doesn't work, where there are boundaries that are too big and where there are certain bowlers where that doesn't work. So realistically, I don't think we can ever get to that point. But also if you look at some of the sports, like um, Major League Baseball, it, it had the biggest sort of early development, the money ball development. Teams didn't all start playing the same. Right. Teams took that information, and in some ways, I think I, I think one thing I have an advantage of over other analysts is that I'm quite a creative thinker because I come from a writing and filmmaking background. My, my thing is, okay, these teams are doing this. What could we do that's a little bit different? What can we do that is a separate tactic there? So you have that. Everyone in basketball knows that the three-point shot is worth more than the long two. But not every team shoots as many three-pointers as the Houston Rockets. And not every team decides to only pick players who could shoot three points, three-pointers like the Houston Rockets. And there's also, there's also a certain point where, I don't know if you saw Jamaica um, in, in, the, in the CPL this year, they basically went in with the, a very similar strategy to what the West Indies do, which is we're going to pack our team with guys who can hit sixes. But the problem is once you do that on the open market, the players aren't quite great. You're getting, you know, you're getting Asif Ali because you've already got Andre Russell. So you've got to get like the next best six hitter. But Asif Ali only averages, let's say, 22 or 23. And then you've got Rodman Powell who can hit incredible sixes, but only against maybe one or two kinds of bowlers. It's already, and then, and let's imagine it's not just Jamaica and, and uh, tr- um, Trinidad um, or Trimbago decide to do the same thing. Then you're already weakening that thing. And you see that in the NBA and you see that in Major League Baseball. It's not that easy to just find guys who can ping um, 100, 100 mile an hour fastballs for home runs all the time. It's not that easy to find guys who can hit 40, uh, 40 foot three pointers all the time. So you can't really conquer it. So then it's about using that information in different ways. And you, you hear this a lot in American sports where everyone almost has the same data, uh, which is we have it now. What can we do creatively? I will say that in cricket, we're not even, we're not even close to <laughs> that. We're, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that um, Sri Lanka were on tour of England and they were asking journalists to look up stats guru for them on Crick Info. Uh, we are not at the point where everyone has the same information. And we're probably not at the point where everyone has analysts who can even uh, dig into it to that level, but that may be that may be something that will happen over the next five or ten years. But I, I don't see that as a problem because I just think that it will, we will come up with many weird and wonderful trends that will come out from cricket because of that. 
Right, right. So ultimately, to, as a final question, do you do you see the game as something uh, mysterious and unsolvable? Definitely, definitely. There, there is no way to conquer cricket. Um, and, and not only that, uh, you know, just little things. Look, look at something like the knuckleball. The knuckleball really didn't exist before the 90s. I know a few people bowled it um, occasionally, but no one, no one had perfected it. Now, the knuckleball comes from a completely different sport in baseball we already use the knuckleball better than baseball does and there's a couple of reasons for this baseball pitchers you're either a knuckleball pitcher or you're not a knuckleball pitcher baseball pitchers don't don't just bring out the knuckleball at a random time in the game whereas we have guys who do it all, all the time and then we haven't even scratched the surface of what the knuckleball could do if you talk to someone like benny howe or andrew ty they've got variations of their knuckleball that we haven't even got to that again baseball doesn't need because it doesn't have a central seam like we do right we are going to have things like that and here's my question to you why doesn't every spinner in the world bowl a knuckleball that spinners generally have long fingers that they actually have an evolutionary advantage over seam bowlers when it comes to the size of their hand is, is that a, is that an actual stat well, yeah, it's my stat. It's my yeah. <laughs> it's my stat based on shaking the hands of Ashley Giles one time. But but generally, to to bowl finger spin, especially, you do need big bigger fingers. To bowl wrist spin, quite often, you need a bigger hand. Seam bowling, you don't always need those sorts of things. There's no reason why every spin bowler in the world shouldn't be practicing a knuckleball if they can do it. And it is a, it is a very hard skill, but if they can do it, um, these are all possible. So to think that we can conquer cricket. Um, I think is it's it's a fanciful thing when you look at the way that cricket plays and the way that it can develop. And there's also just that thing we do lit we do play on a living, breathing surface. Uh, you know, I I know that I don't know if plants have feelings, but I know that they certainly change the way that cricket matches um, are played. Whether it's the myths and stories that we tell ourselves about cricket, or the constant invention and reinvention of the game by the players themselves, or our quest to find a new numerical language with which to understand it, cricket always seems to ask new questions of us. It exists in its own universe, and just as it has mystery built into its creation, it also seems to have mystery as an inherent part of it. The game is too big to reach the end of, certainly in one lifetime. We've been playing, watching, writing and thinking about it in four different centuries and we're not really any closer to exhausting it. In fact, I think we've probably only just started and thank goodness for that. And our thanks to Tom Holland, Osman Samudin and Jared Kimber and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word and if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app. To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www thenightwatchman.net The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace. <laughs>